So, Hare Krishna. <clears throat> so, welcome to our Isopanishad class. Oops, I didn't want to do that. Nope, sorry. Okay, so uh, anyway, here we go. Um, today we're doing Isopanishad verse 10, mantra 10. And uh, so we'll begin by offering obeisances to Prabhupada, and hopefully he will bless us to understand the Isopanishad. For those of you who are wondering about the backdrop there, that is um, UCLA, the university which is ultimately meant to study Krishna. And someday they'll understand that. So um, let's go to verse 10 of Isopanishad. Anyarivahur vidyaya, Anyarahur vidyaya, Iti susumadhiranam. So Prabhupada's translation of this, the wise have explained that one result is derived from the culture of knowledge and that a different result is obtained from the culture of nations. So anyat simply means another. So anyadeva, uh, indeed another, ahur, they say, vidyaya, uh, by knowledge, the, the Prabhupada says one result, uh, so the word result is implied, but not actually stated. It just says, indeed, another. So when you have these two words, anyat and then anyat, it's like one and another. That's kind of the idea. That's what I used to say in Sanskrit. So one, indeed, one understood result, they say. So this is a common expression in, in, in our Shastras, Sanskrit Shastras, ahur, they say, so that just means people that know what they're talking about. So anyadeva ahur vidyaya. They say indeed there is one by knowledge and they say another by unknowledge of vidyaya or ignorance. Iti, thus shushuma, we have heard. And of course the verb here is shrew, to hear. This is the uh, perfect past tense we have heard, Shushruma. And um, because Shruti, the sacred Vedic literature is called Shruti. So throughout our literature, references to hearing using this verb are references to Shastra. So Iti Shushruma means we have heard from people learned in this Vedic knowledge. So diranam, from the sober or from the wise, the word dira. Dira is an interesting word. Of course, it appears a lot in our literature. So I thought I would read from the dictionary so you see the range of meanings of this word dira. It means intelligent because d means intelligence. The word D means intelligence. So therefore the first idea here for Dira is intelligent, <clears throat> wise, skillful, clever, familiar with, uh, steady, constant, which is Prabhupada's notion of uh, sober, steady and constant, firm, resolute, 
brave, energetic, courageous, self-possessed, composed, calm, grave, again, means that are obviously very close to sober in the sense that Prabhupada uses it. It can also mean well-conducted and well-bred. So all those very positive attributes are indicated by the word dhira. So iti susuma dhira nam. Thus we have heard from the dhiras, from the wise, from the grave, uh, uh, from those in the sense who are serious and intelligent, sober. So jena We have heard from the dhiras, those who explain this to us, So one, there's one meaning result, indeed, they say by knowledge, another they say by unknowledge, by ignorance. Thus we have heard from the diras, those who explained this to us, not to us. So, um, I mean, clearly this is true but, but the, this is going to be used uh, sort of in a um, paradoxical way, as we will see. The Yusupanishad, so to speak, is going to play with these terms, vidya and avidya. For example, the previous verse, which is very similar, said, andaktama pravishanti, they enter blind darkness, uh, those who jevidyamupasate, those who cultivate unknowledge, ignorance, avidya. And they go even deeper into darkness. Those who are dedicated to knowledge. So it's so it's been reversed because throughout the Vedas, because throughout the Vedas, it's always said that vidya, in fact, the word vidya is just made from the same root as Veda. So Veda or Vidya brings you to a great life and Avidya as the opposite. But here it's getting reversed that those who are, uh, those who cultivate unknowledge, ignorance, go into blind darkness, but they go even further into darkness, those who cultivate knowledge. So what's going on here? So that's the previous verse. That was verse nine. Uh, and now... We have this verse, which simply says that knowledge and unknowledge, knowledge and ignorance give, uh, lead to different results. And we have heard this from the wise who explained it to us, who explained that to us. So we're gonna have to, so what does this all mean? So we have to keep looking at more verses. I mean, this is meant to intrigue us. These verses of the Vedas are intentionally intriguing and paradoxical. And uh, so let's find out uh, what happens. So now we have the statement, Bidyang cha Bidyang cha just. This is Isopansha mantra 11. Tadvedo bhayang saha avidya mrityum tirtva vidyamritam ashnute. So, uh, So here it is said, one who knows both, one who knows both these uh, together, vidya, knowledge, and avidya, ignorance. So one who knows both of these, saha, together, avidya, by 
unknowledge of vidya, ignorance, crossing over death by ignorance. Again, very paradoxical. This is meant to really, uh, you know, wake you up so you don't just sort of sleepwalk through the Shastras and just sort of read it without paying attention. So what does this mean? That crossing over death, mrityum tirtva, crossing over death by ignorance. Vidyaya, and by knowledge, amrita mashnute, one achieves immortality. So if you look at verses 9, 10, 11, it's gone all, all the way around. It starts by saying that uh, sort of reversing the roles of knowledge and ignorance and say one who uh, cultivates ignorance goes into blind darkness, but one who cultivates knowledge goes even deeper into that blindness. And then the next verse 10 says that uh, the wise say that you get different results from knowledge and unknowledge, knowledge and ignorance, which sounds, sort of sounds conventional. That's sort of a normal Vedic saying, but based on the verse before, you wonder like, well, what are the results? You know, what are the results? And now verse 11 kind of ties everything up and sort of everyone gets a prize here. You know, <laughs> In the previous verse, whether you cultivate knowledge or, or, or unknowledge, knowledge or ignorance, you're going to go into darkness. So it's like you can't win in the material world. Now, in verse 11, it says the opposite, that both knowledge and ignorance give you great rewards. So we're going to try to sort all this out. Uh, because this verse says that uh, one who cultivates both and it's really interesting here because it's emphasized that you need both. You need both vidya and avidya. It's emphasized with two different words here. One, ubhayam, which in Sanskrit means both. You need both. Uh, you have to, uh, one who knows both. And then saha means together. So both A and B together. So the word both and the word together is strongly emphasizing that you've got to have both of them. So avidya by avidya ignorance, mrityum tirtva, crossing over death, vidya mrita mashnute. So by knowledge, one achieves immortality. So what is going on here? What is going on? Because these are apparently contradictory statements or just incoherent statements, but only apparently. Only apparently. And, and, I think what really, what's really going on here is that the Isopanishad and many other Vedic literatures are actually written in code, so to speak. In other words, if you just pick up the Isopanishad and you took a course in Sanskrit and you read it, you are going to be turned around in circles. You will not, you will not find your way. As we know in the Vedic system, one is supposed to accept a guru or a spiritual master. Also the word acharya deva means spiritual teacher. That's actually what it means. So these three verses, nine through 11, illustrate very clearly that without a teacher, you're not gonna figure this out. It is intentionally paradoxical, which means apparently contradictory, it, it just, 
this, these three verses require interpretation. Because if you just take what is called in philosophy, the surface grammar, if you just take the surface meaning, uh, you're just gonna bump into yourself and not know which way to go. So it's interesting that here we find in this ancient Vedic text, these Upanishad, which is the only Upanishad that is directly part of the four Vedas, like part of the text of the four Vedas, uh, the Upanishad is part of the Yajur Veda. So these verses demonstrate that you have to have a guru because otherwise, and, and that's the point. It's just like uh, sometimes there are gates, like you can't get into a restricted area, but there's a little keypad. And if you type in a certain number, then you, the door opens. But unless you know that number, you can't get past the gate. So it's something like that, that here you have all these words. And if you just take the dictionary meaning of the words, you're gonna end up very confused. You need to have the code. If you punch in the code, boom, then suddenly it, it becomes very obvious. And so the code is that, uh, let's go back to verse 11, I'm sorry, verse nine. And, and the code of course comes down through parampara, through disciplic succession. And so let's put in the code that comes through disciplic succession and see what these verses actually mean. So those who cultivate avidya, ignorance, enter into uh, blind darkness. And vidya and, uh, those who are dedicated to vidya, knowledge, uh, go even further into ignorance. So here, knowledge is taken to mean not the highest knowledge of Krishna, but sort of ordinary knowledge of some type of impersonal Brahman. And we actually see that, that people who are perhaps engaged in material life, they're attached to family or to their possessions, such as home or vehicles and their reputation, they're attached to these things. But if they meet an advanced devotee, they can sort of understand Krishna. Whereas if someone is really into impersonalism, and there's not that many of them, those people nowadays because people are pretty lazy about spiritual life. But let's say you meet someone that's really an impersonalist, not just someone that's dabbling in it or read a book somewhere and got kind of intrigued, but someone who's like really a committed impersonalist. It's like, you know, trying to speak to a, to a, to a brick wall. The person who may be engaged in material life but is not an impersonalist, has some kind of piety. Yeah, I can pray to God. That person will much more easily understand Krishna consciousness than the person who has done all this intellectual jnana uh, trying to reach an impersonal Brahman. It'll be much more difficult for that person. And that person will end up ultimately, uh, because they're not gaining a higher taste, they will ultimately fall down as the Bhagavatam explains. So that's verse nine. Then verse 10 says, uh, whoops, sorry, just went the wrong way, hit the wrong arrow. It happens. It happens sometimes you hit the wrong arrow. 
So um, then, then verse 10 said, Anyadi Vahur Bidya, indeed, a different result or one result uh, by knowledge, another result by uh, ignorance. And thus we have heard from the wise who explained it to us. So here you could say it's more of a conventional idea that here vidya can simply mean real knowledge, not just impersonalism, but just knowing, just knowledge of reality, which would include bhakti yoga. And so here it's just saying in, in a more conventional sense, if you just are into ignorance and material life or even impersonalism in its own way as a type of ignorance, uh, then you'll get one result, but if you have real knowledge, you'll get another result. So again, you have to know that these words, vidyana vidya, are semantically shifting. They are, in different verses, can mean different things, which in no way is contradictory because the, the words themselves, if you look in the Sanskrit dictionary, are multivalent. They do go in different semantic directions. And so then finally, verse 11 kind of clears it up. Vidyangcha, vidyangcha, just tadbedo bhayangsaha, one who knows both avidya and vidya. And here they take on a slightly different meaning because avidya here uh, means not literally ignorance, not literally just not knowing, but he, uh, the material world is called in Sanskrit at times, the just the ignorance of idya. This world, the word of idya sometimes can just refer to the material world, which is just a place of ignorance. So here, avidya is used paradoxically to mean vidya of avidya. In other words, avidya here means knowledge of avidya, knowledge of the material world. That's why we joined the Hare Krishna movement, many of us, because we got a good dose of the material world, and we thought, oh, no, that's not what I want. So even this world is called avidya, the ignorance or the unknowing, but you have to know the world to be ignorant. So you have to know what the unknowing is. So if you, and so, uh, you have to know both. You, you have to, so here it's confirmed that you have to know avidya, so I'm not just making this up, it's actually confirmed here in the literal Sanskrit that you have to know the material world. If you don't know the material world, uh, so because by knowing the material world, you go beyond death. If we are not attracted to the material world just because we never really had a chance to enjoy it, that's not strong Krishna consciousness. Just like someone can be sequestered or secluded in a Krishna conscious community. And then if they go out into the world, they can be seduced, misled, bewildered, because they, they didn't, in other words, you're not supposed to just avoid the material world. You're supposed to, of course, avoid sin, but not just avoid the world. We're supposed to know the world and consciously, knowingly, choose something higher. Not that, oh, I bought this one because I didn't know I could have bought that one. You know, what do they call it? Like like uh, buyer's remorse. 
you buy something and you found out, oh, I could have got for the same price, I could have gotten something better. So you're sorry that you bought the first one. So uh, by knowing the material world, we cross over death. And by knowing the spiritual realm, we achieve immortality. But again, uh, you need the code. And the code comes from parampara. Code meaning you need to hear from the, a, a teacher in discipline succession who actually can tell you what it all means. So then it's interesting, having done this sort of this little semantic, not game, but just sort of, an, sort of a, a word, like playing with these words so that unauthorized people are kept out, but people who are authorized can get in. And, and having done this with the words avidya and vidya, now these Upanishads are gonna go through that same thing again really using the same the same verses, but just substituting instead of avidya, it's asambhutim, which is avidya. And then for vidya, we have the positive sambhutim. So we're gonna go through the same drill again, but just with a different set of opposites. And um, let's see what sambhutim means. It can mean, uh, it has a range of meanings, all of which apply here. Uh, birth, origin, production, uh, manifestation of my greater superhuman power. And therefore it, it can refer to the Lord himself. Uh, that's pretty much it. So because bhuti, the verb bhu means uh, to be, it's a verb to be. And so bhuta, means a being, like a living being, a Buddha, or a conditioned soul, Bhutani, the conditioned souls. And then some, some means complete. So something that has like complete existence is called some Bhuti, the word Bhuti from the root Bhu. Bhuti, existence. So some Bhuti, like complete existence. So it can mean manifestation of might, greater superhuman power. And uh, if you have any questions, those will be sent now. Um, so maybe actually I, I, I may uh, stop here today. And um, because in the next verse is 12. Let's take a quick look here. Uh, verse 12. And then, yeah. So we're going to do the same, apparently, set of three verses. We're going to go through the same, same little drill with two opposite words. Uh, the same. So verses 11, I'm sorry, 12, 13, and 14, and 9, 10, 11, they're completely symmetrical, completely parallel. They go through the same little drill, but in the first three verses, 9 through 11, you get this contrast between two antonyms, two opposites, um, vidya and avidya. And then in 12 through 14, we can get the same verses, but with sambhuti and asambhuti. Vidya, avidya, sambhuti, asambhuti. So we'll do those three next time.
So questions, could you please elaborate the part in mantra nine that says worse still are those engaged in uh, the culture of so-called knowledge. What is exactly that culture that it makes? I, maybe you missed that part. It can be the culture of impersonal knowledge, culture of impersonalism. Because jnana, generally the impersonalists imagine that they're on the jnana marg, the path of knowledge. Also can refer to, we see nowadays there are so many intellectuals in the world that are really kind of have less common sense than ordinary people. Not all intellectuals are like that, but some of them really, it's hard not to think they're the biggest fools in the world, some of these so-called intellectuals, especially if you look at the history of 20th century philosophy and even, it's hard not to think these are the most foolish people in the world. So intellectuality without Krishna can produce very odd results. Sometimes we see devotees having a deep aversion from the material world and excuse it as detachment. What does it mean to know the material world? Is it to know how to live in balance with the outside world while still practicing bhakti yoga? Basically, yes, it is to the balance because if, let's say for example, someone was in a relationship, as people now say, it's funny, when I was growing up, you said someone was in a relationship, it didn't mean romantic, it just could be any kind of relationship. But now I noticed in the last 20 or 30 years or whatever it is, you say relationship, it means a romantic relationship. Didn't mean that when I was young. Anyway, so sometimes someone's in a, a relationship and uh, they suffer a lot. It just really goes bad. And it's just the worst experience of their life. Therefore, they have aversion to relationships. It's hard for them to get into a relationship. But that's because of a trauma because of the suffering. And so once the trauma is over, uh, that person will be back out there, back, uh, you know, uh, playing the game again, trying to enjoy. So detachment that simply comes from trauma or suffering, real detachment, once the suffering's over, then you're still really detached. The absolute truth cannot be appreciated and ascertained logic, logico-philosophically. Then Brahma is not, Brahman is not the logos whom philosophers are after from the beginning of philosophy. Question? No, that's not that's not exactly it. Um, yeah, the absolute truth can be appreciated and ascertained philosophically if the philosophy is mixed with devotion. Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita 10.10 that for those who are always devoted, I give them buddhi yoga, the spiritual practice of higher intelligence by which they come to me. So what doesn't work is uh, philosophy without devotion. And as Prabhupada said, even devotion without any real understanding uh, can just be sentimentalism or uh, or fanaticism. Someone may claim to have great love for Krishna. There are certain somewhat theatrical people in India that sort of exhibit so-called ecstasies, but if you 
question them, they don't really know what Krishna is. They don't really have a clear philosophical understanding of Krishna. So you need both. Krishna says that in the Gita, actually, in chapter five, he says that Sankhyan Jogal Pratagbala Prabhadantina Pandita, that only childish people, immature people, think that spiritual practice, the practice of devotion, is different from the cultivation of knowledge. You really need both. Prasva Prabhupada always said religion and philosophy. So philosophy is great when there's also devotion. Considering that people who have some knowledge, such as scholars, are much more difficult to accept the theory, the authority of the Veda, shouldn't we emphasize preaching to common people as they don't have so many preconceptions? Well, it's, I mean, I don't mean to be derogatory to anyone, but it's kind of you get what you pay for in the sense that Yes, it may be harder to convince an intelligent person, but if you do convince that person, they may be able to convince many other people. And so the, the easiest path is not always the best path. Of course, we want everyone to come to Krishna consciousness, so-called common people, uncommon people. But um, the Prabhupada emphasized that which should be obvious that society has a certain structure and people who are intelligent often, not always, but often have more influence because they can persuade other people. And so it's more difficult, but, uh, and plus most people who, most intelligent people are not quote unquote scholars. And some scholars take to Krishna consciousness also, but and, and, and it is for everyone, but yeah, there, there is significant value, you could say strategic importance in persuading intelligent people to take to Krishna consciousness, not just academics, but just intelligent people. So those are the questions we have and uh, hope you got your money's worth. Uh, thank you very much for attending the class and of course tomorrow morning at, at seven o'clock Pacific Coast time in America we have the Bhagavatam class and we'll hope you see hope to see you there and also next Saturday for we'll try to do those three verses the Isopanishad 12 through 15 and try to understand why Krishna is using Sambhuti and Asambhuti after having used Vidya and Avidya. So uh, thank you all very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed that nice little picture I put behind me. Actually, the reason I did that, if you want to know the truth, full disclosure here, a picture because uh, I get better internet reception in my bedroom, but the backdrop is not so appropriate because it's my bedroom. And so I thought I would put something up. You can say, why not put a picture of Krishna? which of course, because I, I sometimes like to put pictures up which show what our goals are to teach Krishna consciousness in the great universities of the world. And so there, that's definitely one of the great Western universities, UCLA. And also I think the architecture is very nice. And I think it also shows that uh, in the gardens, I mean, come on, 
let's admit it, it's classy. From the material point of view, I mean, I know there's lots of very confused people who teach and study at that institution. However, I think it's good also to show that in the West, uh, there, there are beautiful things which can be offered to Krishna. It can be offered to Krishna. And we can get inspiration to see, you know, what we can actually do for Krishna. And that I think the more we respect people that we're preaching to, the more they may respect us. They may reciprocate. If we appreciate some of the good things they've done, well, who knows? They may appreciate us. So these are the kinds of relationships we have to create with people whom we are trying to um, bring to Krishna consciousness. So I can go on all day about why the picture is there, but I won't. So don't panic. <laughs> so thank you all very much. And uh, hope, hope you'll be there tomorrow for the Bhagavatam class and just try to keep this going for Prabhupada. All right, Krishna. <laughs>